If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me to Psalm 46. Psalm 46, when all around my soul gives way, Jesus then is all my hope and stay. So all around is giving way. All my hope and stay is Jesus, our Savior. We tend in ourselves to trust that we are in control. We tend to find satisfaction in the things that we can procure and the things that we have control over. When trials come, when suffering comes, when depression comes, we realize we are in control of nothing. And it either points us to God who is in control of everything or it points us to the fact that we are so not in control that we begin to worry the things that we thought we had control over prove that we do not and we start to sorrow, we start to become frustrated, we start to become depressed. A very real world example of this that just broke my heart on Monday this last week was Robin Williams who committed suicide. How many more times do we have to see people who have it all have such a terrifying, painful end to realize that nothing in this world can satisfy. Ultimately, God alone brings peace and satisfaction. God alone brings that. This psalm is very clearly a psalm that will encourage the heart that is worrying and anxious and struggling with that fact. Is God in control? Or what about me? Am I in control of anything? St. Augustine said it this way, The essence of sin is when we believe the lie that we are self-created, self-dependent, and self-sustaining. And I believe Psalm 46 is all about renouncing that self-reliance and trusting in the Lord alone. The psalmist goes through really two big picture scenarios of nature just going crazy. Uh, some of you experienced that in Hawaii with hurricanes. You know when the earth quakes and when the waters roar and foam. You know that. And then the psalmist goes to the nations and says, what about all the people around you? What if they're going crazy? What if there is chaos and, and you don't know if you will be able to withstand or survive? So the psalmist writes Psalm 46. And I'd just like to read it and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Psalm 46, for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold or fortress. Selah. 
Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold or fortress. Selah. Father, please speak to us now. May your spirit be pleased to grant the gift of illumination to our, our minds and our hearts. Give us ears to hear and give us hearts to receive the truth of your word in such a way that we would hear you speaking and we would not be afraid. Though the mountains may crumble into the seas, though the nations may rage and war, we have a firm foundation. And that is you and you alone. Comfort, teach, instruct, encourage by the power of your word through the presence of your spirit working in our hearts now. We pray in your name. Amen. Psalm 46, it says, it's for the choir director, it's a psalm of the sons of Korah. Uh, Just a little bit of background with that superscription. We've already seen the sons of Korah in Psalm 42. The sons of Korah were not a motorcycle gang, as many people think they were. Uh, The sons of Korah were a group of priests who were charged with the ministry of singing. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 19 describes them in action. And they say, uh, it says, the Korahites... The sons of Korah stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So the author of this psalm is the sons of Korah. Maybe one wrote it or maybe they all wrote it together. But the psalmist in this situation is the sons of Korah. Then we come across a word that we don't quite know. Again, when we see these alliterated words um, or these transliterated words, when they're just completely Uh, From Hebrew to English, we just put the English um, sounds over top of them, like hallelujah or Abba. Alamoth is one of those transliterated words. We don't know exactly what it means. It's actually used once in the Psalms and twice in the entire Old Testament. The root word for Alamoth is a young woman, which we would think, okay, maybe this was written for a young woman to sing. But if you read this, I mean, this is not like the women's glee club kind of singing right here. This is not very women singing. This is like men roaring, like this has got to be a huge choir, not, not a, a young woman singing. Um, maybe. We don't know. It also could mean that it's just written for a high range. So men sing it in high range, and that works for me. So I like that one because I have the range of a sixth grade girl. So um, works for me. It also could mean that there is, there, there is an instrument that has a similar root word, um, but it just means a shrill uh, instrument, a very high tinny instrument, and it could mean that as well. So it's the alamoth is the instrument that is supposed to be playing this song. The bottom line is we do not know. But just in case we don't know what a song is, I love how they say this is for the choir director, and by the way, it's a song. <laughs> a song. It's supposed to be sung We don't know the background of this psalm. We don't explicitly know it like we know in some of the psalms, like David saying, I was running away from Saul or I was hiding in the wilderness. We don't know the explicit background, but most commentators would say that the background is 
This is written after a victory that Israel had, uh, a big victory. So maybe it's the one that Jehoshaphat had in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 30, uh, against the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. Maybe it's that one. Maybe it's uh, the one in um, Isaiah. It's chronicled in Isaiah of Sennacherib coming against Hezekiah in Second Kings 18 through 19, described that war where Sennacherib says, I'm going to destroy you all. And Hezekiah says, we trust in the Lord, and the Lord destroys all of the armies could be that one. The bottom line is we don't know why it was written as far as background and the historicity of why it was written, but we do know the purpose of it. We do know who it is written for. We do know ultimately who this psalm can encourage and affect. And I want to just give you the three people that this psalm is for, okay? See if you're in one of these categories. Find yourself in these categories. Number one, if you are in the midst of a trial or a difficulty, or some painful circumstance, this psalm was written for you. Maybe it wasn't specifically written to you because it was written to the choir director, but it was written for you because God is your refuge in the midst of all of the chaos that's going on. Number two, maybe you say, I'm not in the midst of a trial. I'm not in the midst of a difficulty. Life is going really well, so this psalm must not be for me. Well, it is Even if you aren't going through one now, you soon will be. Hate to break it to you, bad news, you will go through trials. Suffering is right around the corner, pain is right around the corner, and this psalm is for you to establish a foundation in your soul so that when that time comes, you will not be moved or shaken. Number three, if you aren't in the midst of trials and difficulties, others are around you. So let's selflessly, maybe you say, I'm not in the midst of any pain or difficulty or trial. Let's selflessly listen to God speak to us this morning in such a way that we would learn how to encourage others in their time of distress. What does this psalm teach us? It's broken into three sections, three stanzas. You can see the say laws, and we've already seen those before. Look up, right? Pause, look up from your music. Uh, you don't have to sing for a while, and the choir director will call you back in. So this is a pause, a time for reflection. So let's just take the say laws as our break. So verses 1 through 3 is a section, it's a stanza. Verses 4 through 7 is a section or a stanza. And verses 8 through 11 is another section or stanza, all broken up by those say laws where we stop and reflect. The reality is if we are going to be affected by God's word this morning and let it um, ultimately educate and form and encourage our hearts. We need to understand what these three stanzas are saying. So let's take the first. The first stanza. If we are going to have comfort and encouragement in the midst of trials, we're going to say it like this. Number one, we need to let the nature of God change our perspective. Verses one through three deal with letting the nature of who God is change our perspective. Ultimately, when we're in these times, we have a very short, nearsighted perspective, and we're struggling with pain or suffering. And that's why the psalmist starts with the first word of the psalm, God. God, take your eyes off of your problems, take your eyes off of yourself, and look to God, because he is our refuge and strength. Refuge, that word means a strong, secure structure that provides safety from the elements. And I say that not to be technical, but there's something very cool that the psalmist does here. The psalmist describes God being a refuge, a place where the elements can't get to you. Your windows are boarded up. You're okay. You're safe. Nothing is going to harm you. Think of it like a tornado shelter where you go down in 
to the cellar and you're okay and you will not be swept away. That's what the psalmist uses. He uses that word refuge to describe God being a protection from the elements. And then as we already read, verses 2 through 3 describe a lot of crazy element action, right? Mountains are quaking and falling into the sea and the waters are foaming and roaring. So poetically, the psalmist says, in the midst of all that, God shelters you and protects you. The reason I point that out is because when the psalmist gets into the next stanza of God being our stronghold or fortress, your Bibles might say, that word specifically means a raised up high place that would have been a a defensible place from any army that would be attacking you. You'd find a high place like Masada if you've been to Israel, a very high place where it's very difficult to get to and it's fortified. And so that deals with fighting and wars. And the psalmist uses a very specific word to describe God being a protection in the midst of the wars that are going on. But up in verse 1, he is our refuge from the elements. He's our refuge from all of the chaos of nature coming. He's our strength. He's our strength. It's used, that word strength is used in the psalms to speak of God's omnipotence. He is all-powerful. Nothing can stand against his strength. The mountains are falling and he can do whatever he wants to pick them up or put them back. Nothing is a surprise for him and nothing is too great for him. And then this phrase, a very present help in trouble. Um, A very present help in trouble. That's a very uh, difficult translation. It's It's a difficult sentence to translate and that's kind of a clunky way to translate it. The literal translation of it would be that God is a very findable, instead of present, he's there, but he's findable. You don't have to go very far to see him and to be helped by him. He's a very findable help in trouble, trouble in in tight places where you're stuck. And help is, is a word... I use that word when my daughter's carrying groceries out of my car. Like, hey, Chelsea, can you help me? Sure. And she takes like one orange and walks back into the kitchen with it. She's actually really helpful, but that's not the help here. Like, I could really get it on my own, but if you can help me out, it'd be nice. And we want to teach you to be compassionate and serving and all those things. No, this word help means literally this. If the person that you're asking to help you doesn't come and save you, you will die. So it's very traumatic. It's very desperate. So let's translate it in our own translation. God is our refuge from the elements. He's omnipotent in all of his power and strength. And he is incredibly easily found to save us from our demise and doom and death in times when we are stuck in tight places and can't get out on our own. That's what that verse, that's, again, that's why it's clunky, right? There's so much going on there. But the reason why there's so much going on is the psalmist is going to take one verse to say this is who God is, and then he's going to take a couple more verses down below to say this is what we do. This is the response we must have. God is our refuge and strength. Therefore, verse 2, look at what we do. We're not going to fear, though the earth should change. We're not going to fear, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. We're not going to fear even when the waters roar and foam. We're not going to fear when the mountains quake at its swelling pride. So earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, you name it, we will not fear. Why? Because those aren't scary? No. They're terrifying, and they can kill us. We will will not fear. Why? Because we are okay and self-sufficient in our own to save ourselves? No. 
That's why we cry to Jesus, to God, to our help. We will not fear because of who God is. A refuge and strength, incredibly easy to be found to save us in the middle of the tight places that we are in life. That's why we won't fear. That's why I say it the way I do. We need to let the nature of God change our perspective. Who God is must change the way we look at our perspectives and look at our life. The the perspective that we have must change when we see who God is. Even when all around is being destroyed, even when everything is falling apart, God doesn't fall apart and he won't fall apart. And we know who he is and he is unchanging. So that's very basic. It's very straightforward. It's very easy. You can read that and see, okay, God's this way, therefore we won't fear. How do we do that? How do we tangibly, practically do that? Because I don't think it would be helpful just to say, don't be afraid. Don't be sad. Don't be afraid. God's in control. Be blessed. I don't think that's helpful. How do we trust in him? How do we allow who God is in his nature to change our perspective? Turn to Philippians chapter 4. Last week we studied Psalm 119 and we just did the first stanza and we stayed all in 119. We didn't go anywhere else. So I'm going to make up for it this morning. We're going to go all over the place. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. What are we supposed to do? How do we act? How are we supposed to let the nature of God change our perspective? Here are some commands that Paul gives, and you know them. They're familiar to us. Rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4, 4. Again, I will say rejoice. Choose to be joyful. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. He's here. He's near. He's coming whether it's him coming again or whether it's, it's his omnipresence, he's here. And then verse 6, be anxious for nothing. You say, well, that's easy to say, Paul. What are we supposed to do with that? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So you say, okay, I know who God is. If I can sum it up in a word, how do, we, how do we actively work to let the nature of God change our perspective? We pray. We pray. We have to run to God and pray to him and cry out to him. With thanksgiving, yes. With rejoicing, yes. And with freedom from anxiety. Another passage. Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. Another familiar passage. This is Peter saying to a church that was suffering persecution, much like our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. And he says, don't, don't be prideful, don't be proud. God is opposed to the proud, verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, so we have to pray, we have to cry out to God when we are seeing our circumstances, we're struggling to see them rightly, We let God change our perspective. And then what else do we do? Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. You say, well, this is about pride and humility. And it is, but there's a certain aspect of this about being proud that we're in control and we are going to be able to deal with our circumstances. Because look at what he says. Casting all of your anxieties or your cares upon him, verse 7, because he cares for you. 
So don't be so proud that you think you will be able to work through the trial on your own. Let the nature of God change your perspective. He is omnipotent. He is our refuge, our strength. He is the very present help in times of trouble. So let him and his nature change our perspective. And therefore, we will cast our anxiety upon him because he cares for you. And it's not like everything will be uh, easy and, and golden after that. It's not Disneyland after that point because verse 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So it's not easy. It doesn't just get easier. And Peter knows that. And that's why he writes that verse. But as we cast our cares upon him, he cares for us. We know he cares for us. And he loves to do that with humility, with prayer, with patience, with waiting. I love how Peter says at the proper time he will exalt you. We have a timetable that we want God to act upon our timetable. Do what we want when we want it. God says, no, I have a timetable. I have a timetable. The reality is when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When everything is going crazy around us, he is our refuge and our hope. When we lose our job, it's a surprise to us, yes? It's not to God. When the doctor says, you need to come in, and we found something on the scan, and we don't know how long you have left. It's a surprise to us. It's a shock to us. But to God, he is there for us. Very findable help. And it's not a surprise to him. We want things to change now. We want things to change according to our plan. You've heard the the phrase, God's never late. He'll act. God's never late. Don't worry. I like to say, yeah, God's never early either. (laughs) He, he strings it out. He waits for you to learn the lesson. And as you learn and as you're conformed into his image, yeah, he's never late, but he's hardly ever early. And just think about John 11 with Lazarus. Mary and Martha say, please come. If you're here, your friend Lazarus won't die. You can heal him. And we think, well, Jesus was very late, way too late because Lazarus died. Jesus wasn't early, that's for sure. But he wasn't late. There is no such thing as too late in the economy of God working for your good. We have to cast our cares upon God because of his nature. He cares for us. Though our problems feel like the hardest problems in the world, and they are, relative to us, they are. The reality is we can look in this book and see how God has saved and spared and encouraged and helped people that have problems way more insane than ours. Just look through Hebrews 11. You see people that you just look at and go, how did they not drop over dead? How did they not fall down and say, that's it, I'm done? Because God helped them in the midst of their trials. God helped them. We need to let the nature of our God change our perspective of our suffering and our trials. Now, that's only the first three verses, and it's only dealing with creation. The second stanza, once the psalmist writes, say law, you're supposed to pause and think, What could go wrong around me in nature, but I won't fear. God's in control. Then the second stanza, he says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. And then here's the key phrase. God is in the midst of her, and really because of that, she will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. So the second stanza, the first one is dealing with let who God is change our perspective. The second stanza is let where God is, I guess you could say. Let the nearness of God be our peace. Let the nearness of God be our peace. So 
We've got who God is will help us and where God is. He's next to you. He's in our midst. And because of that, we will not be moved. Let the nearness of our God be our peace. He says there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. This is a challenge. Because if you think about it, first of all, what's the city of God? What's the city of God? Jerusalem, right? But why wouldn't he just say Jerusalem? Why does he say city of God? I'll give you three reasons why I think the psalmist says city of God, not Jerusalem. Number one, this is a song, so it's got to be poetic. Number two, this is God's city. This is the city that belongs to God. And the whole point of this stanza is God's with you. This is God's city. So if it's his city, he will fight to defend it and nothing can destroy it. Number three, because I I think that there's more than just the old city of Jerusalem that's in view here. I think there's a little bit more. So I think there's a little bit of ambiguity of city of God to apply in the nearness of when he's writing to old Jerusalem. Because again, I think this is probably written after victory. So the psalmist is saying, look at how God spared his city, Jerusalem, from attack and from destruction. But I think he's also writing with a far view to that final day when the city of God, when Zion, when we will all be in the new Jerusalem. I think there's a little bit of that as well. There's another hint for that. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. There's no river in Jerusalem. (laughs) There's no river. Um, Again, maybe he's taking poetic license here because there is, there's a trickle of water that goes for a couple yards. Um, There's a, there's a spring. Some of you have been there. There's a spring, the the Gihon spring. And that spring was originally outside of the city. And so when enemies would come and try to destroy the city of Jerusalem, Uh, They would come, and the first thing that they do is either pollute or contaminate, throw something dead into the springs so that they have no water supply. And then they just have to wait. Jerusalem has no water supply. We just wait. You all die, and we come in and siege you and take control. So Hezekiah says, you know what? This is really dumb. Why is our spring on the outside of our city? We're just like saying, please take us over. So he built a wall around it. He built a fortress around it. And then he said, you know what? Let's take this spring water. And let's make it into a little river so that we don't have to go down to the spring and get water, but the water comes to us. And so he dug a tunnel, properly known as Hezekiah's Tunnel. Some of you have been there. Is that a river? I mean, you're walking in a little trickle of water, right? It's not a gushing, flowing river. And this says that the river has streams, multiple avenues where the water's going. So I I do think, again, in the near setting, I think this is the psalmist saying, we are very glad by the provision of water that God has given to us from the Gihon Spring to this little pool called the Pool of Siloam by the connection of Hezekiah's Tunnel. I think that that's literally what's in view. But again, I think that this is, it has a feel of like, this is Jerusalem, but it's not Jerusalem. This is Zion, but it's not Zion. This is is something later. This is that realized Jerusalem in Isaiah 33. This is that stream that flows from Jerusalem in from the temple in in Ezekiel and of course it's going to make the city of God glad because God is the one providing that notice the contrast there are waters that roar and foam in verse 3 and there's a river a quiet flowing river there's waters of death in verse 3 and waters that give life and so it's a very poetic way of describing that this is the holy dwelling places of the most high uh, are there and they are made glad because of the provision of 
um, the river of the streams, even though all around is going crazy, there is a quietness and there is a provision. But the reality is none of it would happen if verse 5 wasn't true. God is in the midst of her. And because of that, she will not be moved. And then I love how it says this, God will help her when. When do we want help? We want help in our darkest hour. And God says, wait, write it out, wait to the darkest hour, and the morning will dawn, and then I will help you. God will help when the morning dawns. There's never a moment too soon or too late. And here's where the, his, the history of what's going on comes into play. In verse 6, the nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered, he raised his voice, and again, this is where there's a hint. This, this hasn't happened. The earth melted. God spoke and the earth melted. That's going to happen in Second Peter 3, but this hasn't happened yet. So there's this sense of, okay, we understand there's poetic language that the psalmist is using to say, when God spoke against all of the nations that were warring against, they just got destroyed. And this is a poetic way of saying that. We can say that when football season rolls around, like the Packers were melted by the 49ers. We can say that if we want to, but it's just, we don't normally say those words. We say destroy, destruction. So maybe he's being poetic. But again, I think there's a, there's a near and a far aspect of this. That right now we know that God is our help because he just destroyed all of our enemies. But oh, that final day, God will speak a word and the earth will melt with fire and all unwickedness and all unrighteousness, all wickedness and all unrighteousness will be destroyed once and for all. Sin will be gone and righteousness will reign. So he speaks, the earth melts. And then verse 7 is a refrain that we see twice in this psalm. The Lord of hosts is with us. He's with us. So because he's with us, we can rejoice and we can find peace even though there's an army right outside of our door, since he is with us, we're okay. The Lord of hosts, maybe your Bible says the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, this is uh, Lord Sabaoth, we sing that in the mighty fortress is our God. Lord Sabaoth, the, the God of angel armies, if you will. He's standing there and all of these millions of angels with spears and swords and shields are ready to go to uh, to war on behalf of God and on behalf of us to save and protect. He is the God of angel armies. He's with us to protect us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold or fortress, maybe your Bible says. A mighty fortress is our God. He's our stronghold. That's the word for a military defense, a, a city that has walls that are so thick and so high that they cannot be destroyed. And then the psalmist says, Selah. Think on these things. Think on the fact that God is in your midst. Think on the fact that God is in your midst to protect you. Think of the fact that God has angel armies right around him that at a moment's notice he can say, go, go and kill the oppressors. Go and kill the persecutors. And God is in our midst. Again, back then, the psalmist is saying, oh, praise the Lord. He was there to save the city of Jerusalem. But for us, he's in our midst as well. And ultimately that final day when we will all be with him in the new Jerusalem and then his glory becomes the sun and he's in our midst forever. The bottom line is since God is in our midst, nothing can move us or shake us. Nothing can destroy us. Psalm 87, I would give that to you for 
uh, just a, uh, maybe a quiet time sometime this week. Psalm 87 deals with this in a very real personal way. Zechariah 2. I guess another way we could say this is remember who you belong to. Remember who you belong to. You are God's, and nobody's going to mess with God's people. Nobody. God says in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8, that you are the apple of his eye. Now, we don't normally use that expression, so what does that mean? Uh, The the cornea, the retina, the middle, the, the deepest part of my eye, you are that. You go, well, that's not very romantic or cute or affectionate. What does that have to do with anything? It means this. When God says, you're the apple of my eye, and Zechariah 2.8 says this so clearly, if anybody touches me, if anybody touches you, they're touching me, because if you are the apple of my eye, it's, it's saying this. It's like somebody going, it's like if I went to Buddy and I poked him in the eye with my finger. How are you doing, Buddy? Poke. What would his response be? What would his knee-jerk reaction be? It wouldn't be like, oh, handshake to you. How are you doing? It would be, whoa, and maybe like a punch or get away, or why'd you do that? And God says, if somebody goes after you and tries to destroy you, that's God's response to them. Uh, That's why I love that Zechariah 2 passage. You are the apple of God's eye. So somebody's touching you. They're touching God's eye. And God says, I will not let them mess with you ultimately. They can kill you, but they cannot destroy you. Trials can come. Trials can be very oppressive. Trials can be so painful But since God is with you, you will not be moved. What you are going through is challenging. And what we go through when we go through trials and suffering is not fun. But the question is not what are we going through. The question is who is going through it with you. And that is the God of the universe. He is going through it with you. So we can trust him. You are his son or daughter, if you are a believer. You are his son or daughter. Just like Chelsea implicitly trusts me in just everything, I can say, do you want to go to the beach? Sure. Do you want me to throw you into the ocean? Sure. Like, I can, I can say whatever I want, and she implicitly trusts me. So too, as long as our Father is with us, and that is all the time, he will never leave us or forsake us, we can implicitly trust him because he's with us. So we need to let who God is and the nature of God change our perspective. We need to let where God is, the nearness of God, be our peace in the midst of chaotic circumstances. And the final stanza, we'll say it this way, number three, if we're going to ultimately rest in the firm foundation of our God when all around is giving way, number three, let's say it this way, God's, we need to let God's triumphs in the past be our hope for the future. We need to let God's triumphs in the past be our hope for the future. And you'll see it in verses 8 through 11 in the final stanza. The psalmist says, Come, behold, let's gaze at, let's meditate upon the works of the Lord. And these are works that all happened in the past. He has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Look at what he has done And you will be able to find peace for the future of what is coming. One commentator says it this way, Yahweh is the great warrior who establishes peace for his people. They need not fear because he will avenge their enemies. No power on earth 
can resist God's kingdom. And so, because of that, because of all that he has done in verses 8 and 9, destroying all of these armies, shouldn't mess with him at all. God says that in verse 10. God says that to the nations that are warring against him. This is very similar to the message that uh, Brian preached on Psalm 2, because this aspect of it is God speaking to the nation, saying, hey, you, cease striving, verse 10. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So stop trying to fight against me because you'll never win. You'll never win. That's what God is saying to our enemies. He says, you'll never win. Now, some people might say, but this is like my favorite verse, and it's on like a coffee mug, and it's on my refrigerator, and Hallmark even uses it. Be still and know that I am God. Maybe your Bible says, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Very precious, very cute, very quiet. And you're saying that God's saying that to his enemies? You've just destroyed my favorite uh, refrigerator magnet. What have you done, Patrick? I want to give you another passage that says the exact same thing. This is written to the enemies of God. Stop talking. Stop striving against me. Stop trying to destroy me. Relax because it's not going to work out. I am going to destroy you in the end if you do not turn. This is the one for you. Turn back a couple chapters. Psalm 37. The exact same construction in the Hebrew. It's actually a little bit more soft and compassionate because it's not God talking to his enemies. It's God talking to you and me, to his friends. Psalm 37, verse 1. Don't fret because of evildoers. Be be not envious toward wrongdoers. Why? Because they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. So instead of instead of uh, fretting, instead of being envious, instead of struggling with those things, this is what you're supposed to do. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart or literally he will place in your heart his desires and they will become your desires. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do it. Sounds very similar to our language in Psalm 46 of trust in him. Be, be uh, trusting in the refuge and the strength that you have in who God is. I love in verse 5 where it says commit your way. The Hebrew word is literally roll your way up onto the Lord. All of your burdens, all of your trials, take them off and start rolling them up. And don't let them fall back down and don't let them become your problems again. Roll them on to God. He is a beast of burden, as it were, for you to roll your problems onto him and he'll take them all the rest of the way. He will bring forth, verse 6, your righteousness as the light, your judgment as the noonday. And then here it is, verse 7. My Bible says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. It could literally be translated, be still in God. Be still Be still and know he is God. Be still in who God is and wait patiently for him. Don't fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Instead, cease from anger and forsake wrath. So this is, again, similar language to Psalm 46, but it's written to the believer. It's written to you and me. Don't fret. It only leads to evil doing. Verse 9, evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord they will inherit the land. Be still and know that he is God. If you are the nations that are striving against God, God says, be still, stop striving. I'm in control. I reign supreme and there's no way you will ever destroy me. 
And if you are a believer, a son or daughter of the Most High King, and you are struggling with a circumstance that is destroying your soul, that is oppressing your spirit, that is giving you pain and discomfort, and you are you are struggling, you're at your wit's end. God would say to you from Psalm 37, cease striving, be still. You're not in control. I am. You are mine. And I'm in your midst. And nothing will destroy you. Nothing will destroy you. This is our ultimate hope. Turn to Revelation chapter 11. Our ultimate hope is found in the fact that nothing can ever destroy us and that God wins. That's the reality of of point number three that the psalmist is making. God wins. He won in the past. He wins in the future. And if you're on his side, you win too. That's the whole point of the last stanza. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's going to do. And this is what he is ultimately going to do in the future. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. We sang that in uh, the first song that we sang this morning. We sing that all the time and we have the uh, Handel's Messiah. He will reign forever. There's no doubt about that. There's no question about that. The only question is, will you be reigning with him? And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, the one who controls the angel armies, who are, who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign, and the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your slaves, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. That's not, um, you know, advocating green peace and tree hugging. That's those who destroy those in the earth that are the Lord's. And what happens next? Verse 19, the temple of God, which is in heaven, was open, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Why? To demonstrate God is God and he will reign. Therefore, we do not have to fear. We do not have to fear. The last verse in Psalm 46 is the second time that we see that refrain. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of the angel armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, our fortress, Selah. We saw that verse in verse 7. That is the chorus of this psalm. Who God is should change our perspective on our suffering. Where God is, he's in your midst, should change the way that we deal with suffering and trials. And the final stanza, God wins. God wins. He's won in the past. He wins in the future. And you win with him. He's our stronghold. He's our fortress. This is Martin Luther's favorite psalm. We would be absolutely remiss if we did not speak of it and if we did not sing it. Martin Luther wrote, A mighty fortress is our God, straight from Psalm 46. And you'll see some of those stanzas in there. In 1521, a little background behind the song, in 1521, Martin Luther was excommunicated by the church. People were set out to kill him. So you've got mercenaries coming to kill him. 
You remember Martin Luther's buddy, Philip Melanchthon, uh, helped him, kept bringing him news as uh, Luther was leaving. And he hid out in a, a castle. You remember the Wartburg Castle. And Philip Melanchthon kept on bringing news back to Luther. And guess what? It was bad news. Never good news. It was always Luther. Uh, There's a couple more men that have been set out to kill you. Um, there are a couple more wanted posters in the post office. Uh, a lot more people know about you and they think you're a heretic and they want to kill you. The, the bubonic plague is going around. Some of your family and friends are dying. And historians tell us that when Philip would come and bring bad news, which was every single time, imagine that, knock on the door. Who is it? It's Philip. Oh, what is it this time? What's happened this time? And as, as Philip would speak the bad news and would ultimately succumb to the tragedy of what was going on and would weep and would say, Luther, what's happening? Where is our God? Luther would say this, come, come now, Philip, come, let us sing the 46th Psalm. Let us sing this psalm together. He spent two years in that castle hiding away. In those two years, he translated the Bible into German. And then five years after he left the castle, he wrote, A mighty fortress is our God. This is Luther's favorite psalm. He memorized it, he translated it, and he wrote a song from it. But this is why I say this. The reason why we know Luther is a giant, a giant of Reformation history, a giant of church history, But listen to Luther in the middle of his darkest days when he had severe problems going on physically. Listen to Luther's words, okay? Giant of church history says this. I have just spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body is in pain and I still tremble to this day. Listen to his words. I have been completely abandoned by Christ. I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation, depression, and even blasphemy against God. Why do I say that? The man who wrote, God is a mighty fortress, had a day where he, he knows God doesn't abandon him, but he had a day where he said, I've been completely abandoned. Remember Psalm 42? Remember the psalmist who says, where is God? Where is God? Psalm 77, has your long suffering and your compassion failed? And remember we said we need to be careful because people will say that and they're well-meaning believers and they're struggling with depression, they're struggling with doubt. And what do we call those from, from Job 6.26? They're wind words. The words of a despairing man are but wind. Let them go. And even Luther has wind word days. But when he came out of it, he said this, The 46th Psalm. Oh, we sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us. No, he hasn't completely abandoned me. It feels like it. Oh, but he's with us. He's powerfully and miraculously preserving and defending his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh and sin. That is our God. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. He is never failing in his fortress-like nature. He stands there, and whatever comes, he will not falter or fail. And we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, Krim, no, we don't tremble for him. 
His rage we can't endure. Why? Because God won in the past. He'll win in the future. Lo, his doom is sure. God's kingdom is forever. Can we just sing this song together as a response to the nature of God, the nearness of God, and the fact that God has won in the past and wins in the future, and we get to win with him. God, we thank you for the truth that you are king, and we crown you with many crowns. We know your kingdom is forever, and so we pray that we would cease striving, we would be still, and know that you are God and you are king, and run to you, our mighty fortress, the Lord of angel armies, the God who commands the myriads and myriads and legions of angels. You are on our side and in our midst, and you are for us and not against us. And as we sang earlier, if God is for us, who can be against us? May the nature of who you are, the nearness of where you are being in our midst, and the fact that you have won in the past and will win in the future and we get to win with you, May it be our hope and stay when all around our soul gives way. This day we pray in your name. Amen.